0: Brian O'Leary, you're an Irish Jesuit and author and your latest publication is a book called Radical and Free, Musings on Religious Life. Books on religious life are not so common nowadays so what really lies behind Radical and Free?
1: This book came out of the Year of Consecrated Life which Pope Francis called for 2015 and as ways of marking that year Uh, two retreat centres asked me to give a preached retreat uh, using the consecrated life as the uh, raw material for the talks. So that's what I did. Um, And in a sense, it colours the kind of book it is. Um, I didn't want it to be an academic work, certainly isn't. Uh, At the same time, I didn't want it to be purely devotional work. Uh, So it's somewhere in between. Giving retreat talks is very different to giving a lecture in a classroom. Uh, The purpose is not so much to be didactic or to be uh, overly detailed with information and so on, but it's rather to be more evocative, suggestive, so that people can move more easily into reflection and prayer. So that's the background. I didn't change the talks very much. There are some emendations that I made as I went along, but that's what it is. It comes out of retreat talks, and it's all in the context of what Pope Francis was asking the whole church to celebrate in 2015. So somebody who reads this book, it wouldn't be a book you'd sit down and read from
0: cover to cover right away. I mean, I presume it asks for reflection and some kind of interaction with what you're speaking about.
1: I hope that will be an invitation implicit in, in the book to um, draw people in, into that kind of personal engagement with it and personal response to it. People obviously will vary uh, in their responses. It's directly addressed to religious And they will be more comfortable, perhaps, uh, with the uh, the language and the ideas. They've been living this uh, sort of life for so many years. It's not a book that's exclusively for religious. Any lay person who is interested can get something from that. And uh, perhaps just say a little bit more hmm. about that wider audience.
0: Yeah, because um,
1: you do structure it around
0: the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But yes. so, so, in what way would it appeal to a wider audience?
1: I'll answer that briefly in two ways. One is simply my own experience of teaching a course on religious life at the Milton Institute over 30 years. And during that time, We began with classes which were entirely made up of religious. And therefore, I didn't have to worry about the vocabulary I was using, the terminology, the ideas, the experiences I was pointing to or using uh, in the classroom for reflection. Uh, But then gradually, as the Institute began to take more and more lay people, I discovered some of these lay people appearing in this class And at first I was quite taken aback. I said, what am I to do? Why are they here in the first place? And what am I to do? Do I have to change the way I'm presenting this? So I let it go on for a few months and then gradually it dawned on me, I don't have to change anything. (laughs) I don't have to make the application to the wider Christian life. These lay people are actually making it themselves. And it came through in the period for discussion and questioning and so on, they were already saying, ah, I see in my life as a mother or in my life as a father or uh, my work situation, sometimes they were beginning to see the values that I was talking about as part of religious life. They were seeing it as part of Christian life itself. And um, that was a great relief to me, but also a great joy to me, you know, that Um, Something that I came gradually to understand then more myself, I suppose, is that when you talk about religious life in terms of values, and that's what I do in the book, I'm not talking about structures or uh, kind of the bureaucratic, more bureaucratic side of religious life, but the values lying behind it, they are common Christian values. Uh, It always struck me as... um, Well, first of all, it struck me as strange, and then it struck me as uh, encouraging that going back, the early fathers and mothers in the desert, they actually didn't see themselves as adding anything to Christian observance or doing something over and above what the calling of Christian life as such. They thought they were simply living it out radically, and that's partly where that word radical appears in the title of, of the book. And I was again struck, this is my second response to that, by Pope Francis himself, saying in a talk that he gave, I quote, radical evangelical living is not only for religious, it is demanded of everyone. Now, that, if you like, was my presupposition when I say that this book can be read not just by religious, but by lay people.
0: It reminds me of something that I heard spoken by um, a, a theologian recently, and it did strike me. He said, Christianity is a vocation. And I'd never thought of it like that before, <laughs> you yes. know. And to you being a Christian, what's your vocation? I'm being a Christian. And in some way, you're saying that.
1: Yes, well, the fact that Christianity and Catholicism can no longer be taken for granted as a social or cultural datum that you take for granted, but that each individual has got to choose to believe, to choose to accept uh, God's revelation. That makes us more willing and able to see it as vocation. And then that helps us to understand what baptism is doing for us and what we're incorporated into at baptism.
0: If we take that then, that this is a book that can speak to both lay and religious alike, you do look at the vows as the structure. So how does that work then?
1: Well, by taking values as the key component of all the chapters, I'm able to talk about the values of the Christian life as they are lived out by religious, leaving it then to lay readers to say, well, that's how religious live." it, and, and, and that's a good prophetic gesture for me, a prophetic lifestyle that I can learn from, and it helps me then to live these same values out, but in a different context, the context of family life, the context of single life, context of, of the lay life in general.
0: So if we took an example, say, of of the vow of poverty, I mean, for most lay people, they are struggling hard to keep the wolf from the door or to make ends meet, not all now, but a lot of people. And then we have a religious person and it would might seem that a vow of poverty might be a very different thing for them. Can you talk to that?
1: In the second chapter, Dealing with Poverty, I take as a starting point that poverty is not one thing. It's a whole complex of values which exist within the wider value, if you like, that we call poverty. And many of these subdivisions, if you like, or expressions of poverty in practical areas are quite open to, um, to anybody, to any Christian. Uh, the call, for instance, to hospitality, which has always been seen as part, especially of the monastic spirit and tradition. Hospitality is something that everybody is called to practice in, in their lives. The option for the poor, in some sense, uh, is now being presented by the church as a call to all Christians to find a way to live this out in their lives. And then more recently, ecology and the care of the environment for religious has come in under the heading of poverty, and particularly as ecological degeneration affects the poor mostly. That again is something that people of any kind of background, social background, uh, can hear and can, can respond to. And many feel the need to respond to it. There's a whole movement of living more simply that has swept across the Christian churches, um, uh, and that applies to everyone. Again, we have to live more simply.
0: That's very interesting. So um, uh, um, let's take then the same process and look at obedience.
1: Obedience is, I think, of the three vows as such, uh, it's the most problematic today uh, because of the background of the distortion of the notion of obedience. Uh, in the recent past uh, or well it's no longer recent the uh, the fascist era in europe for example that um, blind obedience was the the final uh, criterion uh, for Doing anything, if I'm told to do it, I do it. I have no say, or I don't want to have any say in questioning the morality of the order or anything like that. So that's part of the background that we come from. And
0: of course, it was there in religious life as well. I was talking recently to somebody who said they had a, a book, and the person Rodriguez, I think, was the person who had written on obedience and. Basically, this was a religious sister and they called him planting cabbages upside down because he said if you were told to plant cabbages upside down, you planted them upside down. It didn't have a good press from any angle, really, because it seemed so ridiculous at one level. And then I think in the 21st century, it's really so far removed from the zeitgeist or the the spirit of the times.
1: Yes, there's so much stress on individual freedom nowadays that um, it's linked with the... uh, sense of community if the sense of community breaks down anywhere whether it's within religious life or in the wider society then obedience just doesn't make sense Um, because there's no motivation for being obedient comes from accepting that there is a community which in some sense is greater than the individual and I'm part of that I have a responsibility for that Uh, that responsibility is fulfilled in many ways but obedience in some form uh, is part of it Uh, so that's one way of getting at it through uh, speaking about what does it mean to belong to a religious order to a family to a parish to a diocese to the church itself and can I accept that belonging brings responsibilities. Taking on my responsibilities is actually an act of obedience because I see God in all of this and I respond to him through the people to whom I have committed my life, to church or to religious community.
0: That's interesting because it does tie in with the root of the word, which means to listen, so that you're listening in a communal sense
1: yes listening is the starting and comes through the rule of st benedict uh, the very first word is a listen again that does say something new maybe to religious also today but to everybody you know that we don't really listen to each other enough and because of that we misunderstand one another we lose touch with one another we even become rather hostile if not suspicious of one another whereas if we begin to listen then these other developments don't happen Uh, listening brings understanding mutual understanding brings in turn community, brings in turn common purpose, etc., etc., and life can go on in a much more healthy way.
0: Now, if we thought obedience was hard, the third one is really going to be something to tackle in 21st century globalised world, and that's chastity.
1: I deliberately, though, spoke in the book about obedience as the most problematic today. I think chastity is not so much problematic as as difficult <laughs> um, and yes it does go against um, the zeitgeist <laughs> the spirit of, of today and yet it's not so much it's, it, I think it's it's human nature itself that makes chastity difficult rather than changing circumstances In, I don't know of any culture that I've come across in the world, or even reading the history of of chastity, uh, where chastity wasn't difficult. And I think it's the the human urge to enter into intimate relationships, to form uh, families, to bring new life into the world, that all of that, in some sense, has to be faced by somebody who says, no, that's not the way for me, I'm going another way. It's always difficult, but I sort of smile sometimes uh, where you come across occasionally in in feminist writings support for chastity. Now, maybe not the same motivation, but say for women particularly, that chastity frees you from any dependence on a man. Uh, And it brings that sort of freedom that these women are looking for. Motivation, yes, of course, is key. And uh, we don't choose chastity for reasons such as the the feminist um, choice that I just mentioned or indeed the choice of anybody who quite selfishly refrains from marriage. And there's a lot of that probably around as well. But for somebody to choose to live In celibate chastity over a lifetime is something that, yes, is pure gift. I mean, unless a person is convinced that they have that gift, then to try to live a celibate chastity, it can be self-destructive. So that's where, you know, psychological testing before entering religious life comes in and is is so necessary probably that's the area where the testing is focused on most anyway
0: yeah there is a difference obviously then for people in a say a diocesan setting of priesthood where celibacy is enforced as a condition of the priesthood it's it's not something optional
1: it's a disciplinary matter i suppose m- many people do lump priests and religious together in a sense say they both live uh, celibate chastity but the experience of it in some at least the motivation of it can be a, a bit different in in the two cases that celibate, celibacy is, enforced on and priests, it's not quite what the theory is. It's what the, like what the practice is and what people see. And many priests, maybe even most and priests themselves seem to see it that way. But the theory is that the Church will only ordain those who already have a call to celibate chastity. So they're trying to say, well, yes, if you have call to celibate chastity as religious have, then we'll ordain you. Uh, that's a bit different than saying you're coming to me, made a priest now one of the conditions is that you remain celibate uh, without asking the, the primary question is, well does this person already feel a call to celibate chastity? Mm-hmm. It's a subtle thing and it's easy to see how it doesn't work too easily that it is seen, celibacy is seen by most people I think simply as a condition for ordination.
0: I mean if that were taken seriously, I think it would be interesting in terms of seminaries maybe in the past when many men they, they were much fuller than they are now I think it's it's a much more it's a very different proposition. I'm just curious, do the Benedictines take a vow of chastity? Do all religious orders
1: or do they vary? the, the naming of the vows is, it can change it can be different. Poverty, chastity, obedience as a terminology only finally kind of was settled uh, in the 13th century. You know, before that, it, it was vaguer in a, in a way. I mean, this was the reality, all right, that people were committing in those three areas, but it was vaguer in a way. And I believe that today, Benedictines take just one vow that of obedience, which includes the others. The, the naming of the commitment the vows in Benedictine order is different, but again, it covers the same area. I rather like the simplicity of the um, again the fathers and mothers of the desert. They didn't speak in terms of these vows as such. They simply de- described themselves and were known as those who made the renunciation. Mm. And the renunciation covered all areas. A relationship with the material world, a relationship with each other, and relationship with one's own self and freedom. So the three elements, uh, the three values, as I speak about it, uh, that were there from the beginning, but they were expressed in different ways, and we've inherited that uh, terminology. It's, it's certainly been settled now for quite a long time, and it's it's very helpful. But um, it does need to be explained, of course. I mean, people don't understand. I mean, it's one of the difficulties I think people have uh, in understanding the vows, if they're simply reading about them, is that uh, if they look up the dictionary, they will get different definitions to the one that, say, I am talking about or using in this book. Because the, the dictionary definition, the, and, and you might say the colloquial Uh, definition of these words is different to, to what we as religious mean by it
0: Which is one good reason why you should have a book about it because perhaps what you really seem to do in the book is to unpack the deeper meanings of these vows, the deeper relevance for them and to contextualize them and to make them relevant for a 21st century lay or religious because it's always changing I mean it's not that truth is not one but Its truth in 2016 is a different truth of those vows in the 13th century or the 6th century.
1: Yes, they always have to be... Well, they'll always be lived a bit differently because cultural changes and historical changes. That means that they have to be interpreted somewhat differently uh, from generation to generation and culture to culture. What I'm doing... Yes, I'm doing that in the book but not in a systematic way. I mean, these, again, are retreat talks in their origin, and that's why I use the term musings in the subtitle, that it's as if uh, you could imagine me sitting down and just mulling over, you know, musing over what this life is all about. So the thing comes out uh, in the different ways that I have come to understand and to express it, uh, you know, over the years. Uh, in both in the teaching of that course at Milton and also in these r- recent retreats.
0: And I know for, I, the feedback was really good from the, the those recent retreats in Manresa and a lot of people spoke about them from various places and the impact that the talks had and that came to resulting in this book. And I like the two words you used. I mean, you're not mincing your words, whatever about your musings. The first two words are radical and free. How do you understand that in terms of what you've written?
1: By radical, I would say simply that it means taking the Gospels seriously, living out the full consequences of uh, what Jesus is talking about, what Jesus is living himself, and therefore giving us an example That without trying to kind of let oneself off or go off on uh, kind of more selfish paths, that just simply taking what Jesus is saying and accepting that fully as the spirit of the whole lifestyle or life form that, that you choose. Free isn't something totally different. Freedom, I think, is the side effect of taking Jesus radically and taking the gospel for what it is and not watering it down. The vows themselves, if they don't bring freedom, they have failed in some way. Now, that freedom is experienced in different ways. A person can grow in freedom interiorly. But in the apostolic uh, religious orders, uh, like my own, uh, freedom then leads to commitment to the mission and the ability to put one's own kind of thoughts on a career aside you know and and to follow the mission and this is where obedience again comes in where am i sent what am i sent to do uh, is that, uh, if you like, what is motivating me? I mean, going back to Pope Francis, maybe as a
0: because he, he himself is in a religious order, he's a he Jesuit, is, and
1: it makes a huge difference. I mean, when he writes that that introductory letter that he wrote to the of consecrated Life is quite a long letter, but you can see in in every line that this is a religious writing, and the sixteenth didn't understand religious all that well. Pope John Paul II understood it even less, uh, but when Francis talks, especially if you're religious yourself, it's so obvious. And if you're a Jesuit, so obvious, you know that that this is a religious speaking. You know.
0: can you can you pin that down for me? I know you know because you're a religious and you're a Jesuit, but for somebody like me or our listeners. What What is it that makes it so obvious? What's qualitatively different?
1: Well, just taking the context of, of of the book, a book on religious life, all the things that he said in the in that letter, uh, setting up the year of consecrated life are so relevant that in, I would feel that they can only come from within religious life itself, in a way. you know, okay, it begins rather simply. She has, look to the past with gratitude, live the present with passion, embrace the future with hope. Now, that's the way that religious are already thinking and speaking and praying you know, themselves. To read that in Pope Francis letter is, is not to um, hear something totally new or something coming from another point, an outside point of view, if you like. That's coming from inside. And the response is to kind of say yes i share that you know i don't have to just begin doing that i mean i'm encouraged to do it at greater depths now but that's already within me you know? and then and what it's
0: he, very relevant to ordinary people
1: as well of course yeah yeah i mean lay people also need lay people to make similar prophetic calls if you like and you can sense that and then the expectations that he set out for religious Again, we're so close to that of, I think, all apostolic religious today. For instance, we must show the joy of the gospel. Well, that's something that you'd expect from Francis anyway, no matter what is who he's talking to. But then he goes on, I am counting on you to wake up the world, since the distinctive sign of consecrated life is prophecy. That shows somehow great confidence. Is what we would like to do. But as we're in a period of diminishment, it's more difficult for us to summon up the energy and the enthusiasm or even the confidence to do that. And yet, one of our own is saying to us, wake up the world. And then that's linked, of course, with uh, his, uh, again, frequent call, go to the margins, get out there into the world, and particularly to the peripheries where those who are outcast, those who are marginalised, those who are poor, etc., are living. Uh, So again, yeah, that's what we want to do, and he's encouraging us to do it.
0: And it is interesting, coming on the foot of two popes who were quite critical of prophets within coming from their own ranks and theologians, I'm thinking of Dupuis who was brought in and questions raised by Ratzinger uh, about his work and then the effect that that had on him even though at the end of the day nothing was found. But even today, people who are being silenced, priests who have spoken out in favour of certain things, John Paul II saying that really... The topic of women's ordination is not shouldn't be discussed even. It is a very different way of proceeding to to actually call on people to be prophets from within the religious orders.
1: Yes, Francis isn't afraid of people making mistakes or taking risks. In fact, he encourages people not to be afraid of, of risk-taking. And that's for the Church as a whole. You know, it's not just religious life. And that's, in some sense... It comes as a relief, first of all, that you don't have to be over cautious, but that you can kind of follow your instinct more, follow your the uh, enthusiasms even, you know, that uh, come to you from time to time, and then that linked in, I think, also with freedom. There's a greater sense of freedom which Francis gives you to be yourself. For a group to be trust in the, the charism of the group, the spirit of the group, and not to be too worried about outside authorities. not saying don't respect church authority or anything like that, but you don't have to be uh, over-cautious in what you're doing, particularly if it's uh, in areas where you're helping others and you're desiring to help others and Uh, If that's risky, well, and good, you know, take the risk and go ahead.
0: Yeah, because I didn't include people like Tony Fannery and Jerry Maloney who have also been suffered, Sean Fagan who recently died. They all suffered greatly. And in any time speaking to people like that, they were within the church. They were hardly doing things that one might have thought would have toppled an edifice or caused great scandal. But I suppose in that regard, the Pope has put forward Pope Francis as a religious, and you've echoed in your book, drawing on the fruits of the religious experience in religious orders, but also in the lasting truth that this has wisdom for everybody and that people can take that and make it their own. And benefit from it.
1: That's what I hoped that happened when I was writing. And, um, yeah, and the values that I see in in religious life and and more specifically then in, in the vows, I think they all lead a person to grow into the kind of person who is able to respond to what Pope Francis is asking of us all.